You only get into out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm -hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football is a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Hello and welcome to Man Marking, the final episode of Series 2. Let's see who we've got on the show today. My name is Neville Sample. I'm an ex-former footballer for Everton and Wales. Uh, my career was over about, I think, 17 to 19 years um, with Everton. And it was a lot longer after that, or just felt a lot longer. During that time, I think I won two first division winners, which is the Premier League now. Two FA Cups, 10 years apart, European Cup, Miller's Cup, some charity sealed stuff, um, Cup, Miller's Cup, I think, and then various bits and pieces, really. I'm now getting towards 60 years old. I work in a special school in Ebervale, and my job there is basically dog's body, security, bringing funding in, linking with businesses, taking the kids out, um, stopping them fighting, um, basically anything that needs doing, really. And obviously, this the, the, the podcast itself, Nev, is about uh, mental health and, and men's mental health. Could you give us an idea as to why you agreed to do an interview for us? Well, because it needs talking about. And I, and I think I come to an age where, um, you know, my dad went through a war. Um, he, he got bayoneted. He lost his lung. He got shot. Um, he came back. Never said a word about it. Ever. You know, when when I, when I when I as I've got older, and I've talked to other people, you know, you know what? I don't honestly understand what was going through his head. To be fair, you know, you how how do you cope with that? I have no idea. And obviously, the way things have worked out, you know, I've seen a lot of young players come through Everton who were either uh, nowhere near ready psychologically for what it was going to take, and it's just built from there. Really. And obviously, working in the field that I work. Now I've done. I've worked with kids for got you know a long, long time, and and we've got a really ridiculous way of treating kids in this country where we put the education first and the child second, mm. your man or woman. But I, but I think you know when I first got in the team or I first started playing football, I was twelve when I made my debut, and everybody just said, "Look, if the uh, you never show it, just crack on," and it was that you 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 were fed a, a thing where you weren't supposed to show any weaknesses whatsoever. And you know, obviously, it did ruin a few people's lives. And I think I think the main reason is, is that you you need to have people to talk, and you know, it's it's braver to talk than it is to keep quiet. I think. Joining me today, as usual, is Ryan and Ant. Chaps, how are we doing today? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Yeah, not and bad. Go, going well. Yeah, doing all right. Good stuff. Good stuff. So we introduced the the opening question a couple of weeks back. Today's opening question. We saw Joshua Kimmich score a lovely dink in the Dortmund buying game last week. So what I want to know from you two, and I'm going to start with Ant, is what is your favourite chip slash dinked goal of all time? So Ian Wright's against uh, against Leeds. Burkamp on to right. Now he's lifted it beyond Lukic. 
just because it, it's just such a good goal. Just because it's Ian Wright and he's he's amazing. I think he did it for fun. He made keepers look silly throughout the throughout the nineties. I think every goal was a lob. Ryan, what about you, mate? Yeah, I was torn between two, and I actually surprised Ant didn't go for the first one, uh, which is the famous Philippe Albert one. Here they are, looking for number five. With Philippe Albert! Oh! Uh, against Man United, I think they won 5-0. And I don't know if you remember um, a few years ago, Giovanni Dos Santos for Mexico against the United States. He had like eight players around him. And he somehow just dinked it into the only place they could have went. But now it's played back. Torado. Nice cutting ball. Howard off his line. He's in trouble there with the Santos on it. The net is empty. He'll float it in. Mexico has taken over with a 4 2 lead. Do you know which one I'd go for? The one that always sticks in my mind. Uh, Wayne Rooney, United against Portsmouth when David James has stood on the line and he, and he does it from the corner of the box. That's uh, that was always a special one. And here's Neville. Rooney again. Oh, he's floated one over David James. That's absolutely marvellous. That's a magical goal in the FA Cup by Wayne Rooney. Astonishing vision and perfect technique. Did I put John Macken in goal? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. So joining us as well, Katie's back. She's back in the virtual studio. Katie, how are we Hi. getting on? I'm really good. Thanks for having me back. I've missed you guys. So today's episode, we've got Neville Southall, former Everton, former Wales goalkeeper, arguably the best goalkeeper in the world in the mid-80s. It's probably a silly question, but Ryan, why did we want to speak to Neville Southall? Yeah, apart from being an unbelievable football player, he's clearly quite passionate about helping others and dedicates a lot of his time to doing so. He does this in various different ways, but one of the ways he does this is handing over his Twitter um, for people to have a, a wider reach to push their some pressing issues that, that, that they focus on, whether that's domestic abuse, uh, sex workers, um LGBT rights, those type of things, sometimes animal welfare. So he's very passionate about helping others and that just fits in exactly with what our ethos is, using, using football as a vehicle to to help and, and put these topics at the forefront of people's mind. And I don't think there's really a better person place to do that than Neville. Absolutely. And, and obviously every episode we have a theme. Do you want to tell the listeners what today's theme is, mate? Yeah, so uh, today's theme, we've got striving to be the best version of you on and off the pitch. Um, I think when you listen to the interview, there's a, a bit of talk about how, how Neville got himself to be the player he was and talked about inches a lot. Um, I was saying to you before, you know, it took me down the, down the Al Pacino speech of um, football, American football as it is, and it's a game of inches and life is a game of inches as well, so... That um, kind of resonated with me. Um, it's a really, if you haven't seen it, it's, I'm not going to spoil it. It's a really amazing uh, speech to uh, to witness. Uh, it's Al Pacino probably at his best. Without wanting to over-egg the pudding, and I suspect most people who are listening are, are screaming at their phones at the moment and they're, they're waiting for another of your famous impressions. Is Al Pacino in the restaurant? Uh, I haven't done it for a, for a little while and I can't do it from the, from the Any Given Sunday film either, so... She's got a great ass. 
So without further ado, this is Neville Southall's interview and we'll see you on the other side. What was your relationship like with football when you were when you were a child? Did you always want to be a footballer? Um, well, in, in primary school, I just like diving about. Um, when I got to sort of secondary school, I didn't like the school much, to be fair. I loved PE. I was lucky because I always played sort of two years above my my age group. Um, when I was obviously 14, I was playing, I was 12, and I was playing in the man's league on a Saturday. Oh, sorry, school first, Saturday morning, then a man's league in the afternoon, then some, a pub team on a Sunday, and then my own age group on a Sunday afternoon. So I was playing four four games a week, really, and it was it, it was good. You know, I, I learned an awful lot, and I think, daft as it seems, I, I benefited, I think, more from playing higher, faster, and with men, because I, I never had the, you know, the confrontations I had with people, you know, sort of physical con- contact really was, was to be expected and was a norm and nothing was, so, so I enjoyed that. But so the other side of it, when I played my own age, was it was quite a breeze really because nobody was going to be as intimidated as the, the fellows I was playing against. So for me, it was, it was a good way in. But people forget the other bits. You know, it's, it, you know when you've got kids, they behave like kids. Mm. About and stuff like that. Where I think sometimes around the men, if you just and I've I've seen it in schools and I've seen it working with people. If you've got the right role models around you, it don't have to help your behaviour itself and, and and the way you do things and the way you approach things and does shape your sort of morals a little bit. And you know when you're in school now, some of the kids you know can't relate to me whatsoever, but some can mm. relate to other people. So it's, I think it's sometimes it's finding that right person to be with and to have like a key worker, if, if you like, to, to work with that. And I'm convinced all the mental health things are, you know, you can you can spend millions and millions on psychiatrists. But I, I think the main thing is, is people want a pair of ears and, and they want to be able to talk to somebody. Uh, but it's got to be the right person. Yeah. Yourself, if you go, if you go to the wrong doctor or you go to the wrong dentist, then... Your relationship's not very good. If you go to the right one, it's fantastic, and you 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 know you don't enjoy going there, but you 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 get more out of your experiences than you do going anywhere else. And I think it's the same for everything. You walk in a good shop where they're, they're really nice to you and whatever, then people go back. If you have a bad you know relationship in that shop, although they're not very good, then you don't go back. So I think everybody needs the right person. The trick is in this country is it's so hard to find that right person for everybody individually. So you, you get a psychiatrist or a psychologist that will work with a group of people, not necessarily all the right people. And I think sometimes, you know, a, a switch of personality sometimes can make a massive difference. And once you've made them steps to get in front of somebody and it's the wrong person, you know, it can be really, really damaging for you. You know, it can put you back to, you know, a couple of years at least. And I, and I do think sometimes, you know, we forget how important it is you know, forget your qualifications, forget everything else. It, it, it's that first bit when you walk into someone and you feel comfortable. I know I know you can walk into places and you become comfortable over time. So, so there is that. But sometimes things just don't work. You know, I, I don't get on with all the kids at school because it's impossible because there's so many. You're not always going to have a good relationship with everybody you meet. Yes, you can, you can help, but it, it means that there would be a better relationship with somebody else if you could find out somebody else. And I think, you know... <laughs> I went to the dentist probably, oh God knows, a year ago, and they, she, you know, I seen the dentist. Said, "Oh well, go and see the woman in there." So I went to see the woman. She said, "I can't take that out." 
And I said, well, I thought you were a dentist. And she said, well, it's too much for me. So I went, all right. So, it, but it's carried on for six months. Mm. So, well, I ain't going back there again, am I? Because I went to somebody else. Within, within 30 seconds, my tooth was out and I'd been waiting six months. So that's just uh, me. And obviously I only had a toothache. Imagine if I had, you know, real problems. Mm. And you'd, you'd be stuck. And I, I do think... We're also absolutely, I don't know what you're allowed to swear on here. Yeah, swear away now. <laughs> but absolutely shit at saying things. And and the stigma around it is, is just embarrassing. Um, and, and I think it's, the government's probably as much to blame as anyone else. I mean, they're all jumping on a bandwagon now. You can see everybody jumping on a bandwagon now because it's trendy. But this has been going for years and years and mm -hmm. years. This slow sea change. But now it's become trendy. Everybody seems to want to jump on the bandwagon of mental health. And, and now it looks to me as that everybody's doing stuff. And, and even that is not coordinated. So it, it looks to me as that we're, we're going, right, okay, there's the wall. If we throw loads of mud against that wall, something is bound to stick. So, But we haven't got a real cohesive plan for whatever it is. And yet there's people doing fantastic work in isolation. Mm. You know, yourselves. You're you're isolated, aren't you? Where's where's your group? Where's your where's your, where's your union of people who who can who can all band together to have a voice? Everybody's doing it with a with a small voice. What we really need is is a big voice, and it's we need the people to speak up. And I think at some stage, all this stuff will quieten down. It'll be left to the same old things again, you know, like yourselves, and there'll be charities that pick stuff up, and the hospitals will pick it up, and you know, somebody's got to get in to change what we're doing because it ain't working. And after this period of isolation, people say there's going to be bigger problems. Well, well, there will be bigger problems. Yeah. But there'll also be bigger problems with domestic abuse. There'll also be bigger problems with debt. There'll also be bigger problems with homeless people. So there's an awful lot that's going to come out the other end that we're nowhere near equipped to deal with. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with anything anything you've said there now. Um, Going back then to 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 your football career, when you were when you were a, a, a teenager, I believe you um, had a, a tour in Germany and were offered a, a deal with with Fortuna Dusseldorf. Was that right? Well, my uncle used to run the team, and I played for him on a Saturday. Well, he was he was a bit mad to be fair himself. <laughs> you know, we'd make us run up the Great Hall, and if we weren't there, the bus would drive off and leave you. You know, we we used to turn up at games in the back of the wagons because he couldn't have a bus. So he bought this crappiest old coach he could find, and him and his son drove it to Germany. We had a crash as soon as we got into Dusseldorf. Yeah. Uh, we played against Fortuna uh, Dusseldorf on the night, I think, the next night, on Shale. And then when he got on the bus in the morning, about five o'clock, because that's the time we had to leave to get back, um, he said, right, do you want to stay here? And I went, well, no, I want to go home. And he went, well, they want to sign you. I went, right, okay. Let's go home. It wasn't put very well, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, what were was... your um, What were your thoughts then when when that was presented to you? Well, I was, I was fourteen. I, I'd been up all night. Uh, my brother woke me up at two o'clock because he changed all the clocks and told me it was time to get up. So I got get, got dressed, brushed my teeth, did everything, come downstairs, and nobody about was it. So I, I did that, and then so we got back on the bus at five o'clock. I was tired. I just wanted to go home. Because it was a marathon journey, I think it took us nearly well, it took us over a day to get home. Because um, the bus was about forty mile an hour, and if you think from Dusseldorf, 
back to Landed Nose Affair all the like. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, looking back on it, if it had been presented properly, it would have, been, it would have probably been a, a decent proposition for me. But yeah, because... I, I, I think I was mature enough to make that decision. That was the only problem. You know, I was 14, but I, I really didn't give a shit about anything. You know, would I stay in Germany? Probably not. Do I like Germany? I, I love Germany as a country. I think they do this stuff really, really well. And probably I would have been a different person. Um, why do you think it took to that age for you to, to almost get recognised and you, you know, to, to, to get a contract? Because you were obviously good enough. I was what do you think was the reason? I loads of people. I was too small and too scruffy. <laughs> That's, <laughs> it. That's it. That was. I mean, I, when I went to crew, I, I played in goal first half. And I played centre half, second half. We went to Bolton and they, they brought a team and we got smashed six nil, but they wanted me back. And I thought the way they set the trial up was disgrace, so I never went back there. You know, so the, the trials they had were I enjoyed crew to be fair. But I was taken to the games by a an old fellow who was probably oh, clocking on seventy then. So um and I don't know what happened if the crew wanted. They kept telling me they wanted me back, but nothing ever came of it. So I did loads of different things for Wrexham, but I was always told I was too scruffy and uh, too small. So I, I didn't really grow till I was, you know, I came out of school and then I did loads of gymnastics and stuff like that. So I, so I did grow and then I went on the buildings and got stronger and fitter again. And then I did my own training really after after you know being on carrier all day. So it was yeah. a different route, but. I don't. I don't think I would have enjoyed being an apprentice. Mm. It would be too formal for me. I'm not, I'm not great with four walls as it is. I'm not great with authority. So I know it's it's one of them where I'd have probably gone. I wouldn't have lasted. I don't think the way that you kind of got into the game may have been stood you in good stead moving forwards rather than coming through the academy. Yeah, I, I, I had more experience because of obviously I played above my level. I played against men. Um, then I moved overseas. I moved around a bit to different clubs, which give me different, you know, different um, things really, uh, and different experiences, and not all great. Um, but I, I think they make you what you are. And I think you know, getting used to travelling to different places. When I played for Winsford, I never trained with Winsford United at all because they were by Chester. I never trained once. I just turned up and played all the games. Um, so that was that was good for me. But that team was full of scousers. And that gave me another insight into, you know, I'd met scouts before, but usually they just worked in a hotel in, in I didn't know really. <laughs> so, you know, I wasn't wasn't that well up on them. But their attitude and that, you know, the manager was just scouting it. I liked the way they did this stuff. I liked their enthusiasm. I liked their will to win. I liked the way they wouldn't back down on anybody. So I did like that sort of side of it. So, it, you know, I, I think they didn't have to so much. No one obviously had gone to Berry. They didn't have to blood me so much in a competitive bit because I was always going to be competitive because I'd been through that stage and I knew I could, I could, I could look after myself on my on whatever level I played at with men. So I was I was quite lucky that, and, and, and I've been really lucky that other people have looked after me as well. Do you think um, the fact that you were working in your sort of later teenage years? You obviously you mentioned that um, you were a hot, uh, hot carrier. Uh, you worked as a binman, a, a waiter, and, and and did various other, you know, the type of jobs that that myself would have done when I was a teenager. Do you think that sort of stood you in good stead when you when you when you eventually became professional? Yeah, look, because I, you know, I was working on the buildings and I was earning good money. 
I got lesser berries than I did the hot curry. So I knew that worst case scenario if I failed at berry, I'd go back to hot curry. You know, and then obviously I did all right at berry, and then he sold me to Everton. I won't walk through the door at Everton. They're the only thing that I thought was, look, if it don't work out here, then I know I can play at that level. So, so I, you know, if I did okay at Everton, I might be able to make myself a career. So for me, it was about finding out about me hmm. and what what I, what I could do. Because nobody knows what you can do until somebody gives you the the opportunity to do what you got to do. You know, and I was lucky really that I've been given opportunities and I've been surrounded by good people. If I do, you know, I look at some people and I think, well, if if that would have been, you know, if I'd have been in that situation with them kind of people, would I? You know, if, for instance, if Mike Walker was my first ever manager, would I have been the same person? I don't think I would have been. Mm. You know, I, I was lucky that Howard sort of understood me and, you know, let, let me crack on with doing stuff. Whereas I don't think Mike, Mike Walker was a bit more controlly and, you know, didn't like all that sort of stuff. And I suppose, in all fairness to him, they both had different agendas. Howard was trying to build a team. You know, Mike had come in and on the back of some success at Norwich. Uh, I had a different agenda again to change the team to him, and I wasn't included in that. So I suppose different agendas, but I don't think I would have been the same person. It's like one of those things, isn't it, where like the stars align sometimes, don't they, the right person, right place, right time? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, I've seen it over the years at Evan. We can have a player who's, you know, talented, but just can't fit in. I know there's, there's something else about Evan that you, you just have to be able to fit in. Mm. Same for any club. You know, I walked into Stoke on loan at the end of my career and I didn't realise what I was walking into. You know, it was so political. You know, you think you, Chris Kamara had come in as manager. The, the two people who'd had the manager's job before were in, in the background chipping away at him. The players were all unhappy. So it was, it was a different situation for me as well. And... I think you have to be really lucky to be surrounded by good people, and unfortunately, I was. Just to um, touch on when you you first started at to Everton, then, and I believe in the first few seasons you actually suffered with some some nasty ulcers and swollen feet, and you ended up out on loan at Port Vale. What what was that period like? Um, well, looking back, stupid because. You know, after the Liverpool game, I don't know whether Howard was in his own way protecting me. I mean, after the game, my my feet were ulcerated. Um, they used to go down to the bone, and sometimes I used to have injections into my little toes because they were they were all holy. But at the same time, if it had been now, that wouldn't have happened because it, all it needed was a chiropodist, and the chiropodist uh, rid of it all within two or three weeks. But I spent like two or three years like this. My feet had swell up after the games and stuff. And all I did after after the Liverpool game, they took me to Lord's Hospital. They taped my little toe and my other toe apart and painted stuff on it. I think called Jensen Violet, because it is violet, and I don't know what it did. Um and then that was it. They left me in hospital for three days and my toes open like that. And it was just ridiculous because all it needed was a chiropodist to come in and just basically cut the dead skin away, get it all down, and would have been fine. Um, going to Port Vale was great for me because it was going back. Um, the lads in there were, were brilliant. They were old pros. And funny enough, there's a there's a thing going around now with Ernie Moss, who's got dementia. Um, who's a centre forward, a really good centre forward, and I played with him. 
and they they still think that's heading the ball. So I know is is you know his, his daughter's really pushing for more stuff, more investigation into dementia and in, football. So you know it's funny how it comes round really. But they were a good set of lads, and the manager was was mad as a hatter and was great. To be fair, it was all about enthusiasm and all that. And it was nice to go back to somewhere where I was really comfortable. You know, and, and he did try and sign me, but I wouldn't wouldn't let me go anyway. He didn't tell me that until after I come back. To be fair to him. <laughs> but so, but again, that was, I was glad that I was wanted at Port Vale, but I was glad that I was wanted by Howard as well. So it was if, kind of nice, it was a nice double-edged sword for me. I can imagine, yeah, and uh, the, Everton was such a big club at the time as well, you obviously would have wanted to succeed there first, but if, well, if they would have let you spoke to Port Vale, would you have maybe took the move permanently? In all fairness, right, everybody just wants to be wanted. Yeah. So, Nice to be wanted at Port Vale and nice to be wanted at Evan. Um, I did, never thought I'd go to Port Vale in all fairness. Not because Evan was a big club, but if I would want to be, that was enough for me. Yeah. So that's enough. You know, whatever else goes on, there's no point in me going back there if the geezer didn't want me in the first place. So he wanted me back and that was that was enough for me. And I want to come back with a, a sort of different way. You know, I'd come back. I suppose it, in a way I took a step back to go forward again, which I don't think is a, a bad thing in lots of things. You know, I suppose if if I was running against the wall and smashing my face on it, Port Vale told me a way to go around the wall. Yeah, that that's a good point you make there. And I think it's a problem with modern day football where these young lads just don't get enough exposure or feel the two above a certain level to maybe turn the noses up at a low move to a lower league club, but it can really give you great grounding, can't it? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's I think it's a bit, bit di- still a little bit different now. Not not as much as it used to be, because everybody plays the same way now. You know, it used to be the higher up you go, the more football was played, the more physical, the lower you got. And now, now it tends not to be as much as that. You know, the, the, the pitch is now are all perfect. The, the, the grounds are better than they have ever been. So I think now there's there's something you need to shake out of of the younger players is that is how good they want to be. But I think the society in football is one where you've got a controlling society where people tell you how long you should train for, what you should eat, what you should drink, and they tell you what you should do with the ball at every opportunity. So they micromanage, and I think. Sometimes you need people who can think because at the end of the day, when you go on the pitch, you you can't have somebody with an iPad on the sidelines making decisions for you. And I, and I think sometimes the decision-making and if you want to really, really improve, you've got now a, a battle with your physios and your, your fitness people going, well, no, no, you've done enough. You know, you, you play three games this month. You know, you need a rest. Well, if you're telling me I need a rest... And you're telling me that I'm tired. That's not a real good signal for anybody to send out to anybody, you know. Yeah. So I think there's there's a there's an undercurrent in football where it's it's been brought up that we are sending bad signals to players, you know. And we have the best psychologists in football now than ever before. And yet, if you hear some of the things, well, okay, yeah, yeah, he's having a bad time in front of goal. Yeah, it's psychological. Well, what are you doing? And you go, well, that, that fella, you know, he gets tired after 70 minutes. But you're a fitness expert. Why? 
we don't we're not asking them questions we're just accepting that it's a fact because everybody tells us yeah players can't last 90 minutes anymore it's funny because all the ones that are valuable stay on the pitch the longest for me the elite is the elite and if the premier league can't last i would go in and sack all the fitness people if he's got a problem mentally and that fella's not doing anything for him then i would sack him and i do believe we've got into a position now where because we have so many people talk so much shit about football is that we're starting to believe it you no know, nobody talks about um you know a striker you know a player playing behind a striker it's all between the lines and shit like that well everybody's between the lines also be off the pitch so i really don't get we've changed over but it's the same game but there's been another another shift in that we have to come up with new terminology for everything because the old terminology was no good because it was too it was too clear too precise and i think players are overcoached and yet everybody in the stand wants to see a gaza everybody yeah. wants to see a personality they want to see something on the pitch that reflects who the person is but most of them are just bland and they're bland yeah. because the coaches don't trust them they're bland because they're micromanaged they're bland because they're told what to do every minute of their lives and it's as if they can't be trusted to make their own decisions so when they when they have to play off the cuff you know it's very very difficult for them and it's to me it's it's a, it's about freedom of expression as well you know we don't get the type of people that we used to get stats you know, i had an argument with bobby gould when i was playing for wales he brought in all his stats and i said right so if i kick the ball to center forward 99 times of 100 and he loses it 99 times 100 that's bad that's bad for me is it and he went yeah so but that don't make any sense it's not my fault if he shares it <laughs> well it's not is it if i kick it straight onto his head and he and he loses possession with it that's not down to me because i found what i need to do so I think you can read well. Look, look, look at Trump and look at look at look at Boris Johnson. You can read statistics any way you want, and uh, that that's the problem. And um, gambling, you know, is I don't think people realise how bad it is. I don't think um, until until you know somebody who's done it, you know somebody who can't help themselves, and uh, I think it's because it's not. Everybody thinks it's somebody in a, in the casino at night just put you know spending it, spending it. It's not, you know. And even now, when you look around, you see all the adverts on television for gambling, and uh, it's constant. And even more so now because people have got time on their hands. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and I I do think the FA are a pile of shite because they don't want to do anything about it. The clubs really should go out and say, no, we can't do it. You know, morally we can't do it. If you're thinking about losing money, well. You know, here we go, we've got Betfred or whatever we've got on our shirts or Paddy Power or whatever. And, I, and I've worked for both of them. Um, and that's one of the main reasons why I won't do it anymore. It's it was because, you know, I met Alan um, and we, we've had a chat about stuff. And I met Callan Harris, the, the AM in Swansea, who's really against gambling. And I suppose it was like everything else. Until you, you, you meet someone, talk to them, you don't really have any idea. And I think it's the humanising of everything that's going to get a message through. And that, that's why you know, the mental health things come now, because they've seen people talk about it. And I think once you start, you know, humanising everything, then people can understand it. Yeah. People, oh, yeah, OK, this, that, and the other. It's the same with gambling. You know, we have players who used to bet on everything. 
yeah. all the time. And, oh, yeah, it was all right. Yeah, it was good. It was good as gold, you know. And, uh, we could stop when we want. Well, so, yeah, it's all very well to say that, but where's your support network? How, how would you know you could stop? You know, and where, where is the support for these people? Um, Scott, who we had on the show, he was talking about his story now, runs something called, well, he, he helps um, lecture at um, Epic Risk Management. And one thing he said is because football contracts are so much more now, even before you've kicked the ball at senior level, young players have a lot of money and a lot of time. And that's a very dangerous mix. Whereas I suppose back in your era, you, the good money came after you've actually entered and carved out a career for yourself. But now some of these lads, just so they don't get poached, are on thousands of pounds a week and they train for three hours a day. So what do you do for the rest of the day? Well, I and, you try and recreate your buzz that you get on a Saturday. Yeah. You know, and you can go out and you can buy a a Bentley. The next day you can buy a Ferrari. But you can't keep buying cars all week. You can buy a house, you can do it up as much as you want. But there's a limit to that. So I think it's all about it's trying to recreate that buzz. So and that that's the problem for young young ones. They want they want the buzz, they want the excitement, but you have no way of getting out of this system. And I, I do think sometimes that's where they need to be looked at. Is, is yes, you're gambling, or why are you gambling? Right, you're gambling because you enjoy it. You get the buzz. You get addicted. Well, if you if you're looking for a buzz, then what can we replace that with? And I, unfortunately, I'm I'm not sure what you can do. And I, and I think that's this is where may maybe they should be looking at. And I did look at somebody the other day about gambling and replacing like a buzz. What gives you a good feeling is whether you know, maybe somewhere in the brain there's something that they they could do or, 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 or are you more susceptible earlier so you could have a test. So maybe look at you maybe look at the genetics and, and then look at maybe take some, you know, uh, brain scans of people who, who have been addictive and, and see where they go. And see, you know, go down that route as well as the looking at the environment. And I think if you look at the environment, you look you're looking at, you know, clinical trials and you've got half a chance of coming up with something, but at the moment, you know, how do you replace your buzz? You know, well, you know, it's like an alcoholic, isn't it? After three pints, it's nothing. After after ten pints, you know, okay, you know, so he needs more and more. He needs to get up and do it. What what drives the compulsiveness? So is there something we can do to stop them being compulsive and and wanting that thing? You know, and it's the same with anything, because once they find that thing that stops them having that buzz. But a lot of things, you know, would be cured, but at the moment, I'm not sure what it is, and I don't think anybody else is. To, to jump back on your career, then, um, Everton's most decorated footballer, um, arguably best goalkeeper in the world for a considerable period of time. As somebody who came into the game late and had quite humble beginnings, how, how did that feel? How did you take that in your stride emotionally at the time? For Morris, I didn't really give a shit. To be fair. <laughs> Because it's only somebody's opinion, isn't it? Yeah. Look, look, and, and you. I went through a period where n- nobody would write anything bad about me, and I went through a period where they did write shit about me. And then I went through a period where, you know, I was good also, and so I now I've retired. I'm fucking great. And I think I think you've got to realise where you are, are your stage in your career. You know, I was just started off. I didn't do that great at Everton to start with, so so I got a bit of stick here and there. But it was okay because potentially I was okay. They got in and did well, and then I was in my prime, so I, I obviously must be great. Every save I made was enhanced by because I was on my prime. Then as I got over a certain age, it was, well, yeah, you know, 
veteran veteran makes this mistake or veteran didn't do as well for that. Even though I was playing for me, I was playing the same type of game, and then you know, so you got to realise what stage of career you're at, how people treat you, um, and also as soon as you start worrying about whether you're good at this or good at that, somebody down the road's better. And I and I used to come into training and go right. Sometimes I didn't want to train, you know, come in and go, I'm knackered, we've had a long trip to Norwich. We've had to come in for a bath and we've got to train tomorrow, really tired. And I used to think, well, if I don't do it because I'm in charge of me, then somebody down the road is going to be doing it and they'll end up being better than me. And I don't want that. So I tried to use everything as a, as a yardstick for me. I knew that someone else, somebody else was going to be better than me eventually. But I want to keep my place at Everton and I want to keep my my standards up if you like so I, I didn't want to drop my standards because you know i couldn't be asked one day because if you can't be asked one day then maybe the next two days you can't be asked and before you know it it's six months down the road and you know i'm, I'm back in tesco stacking shelves um i think i read in an article that you said i was really self-centered when i was playing i couldn't give a fuck about anything else other than playing football i'd rather be me now but you think to be as successful as you were, you had to be that one-track-minded and have that tunnel vision? I think to a certain extent you did. I'm not sure. Again, I'm not sure whether the people who surround you may not be the right people for you at times as well. I think if I had the experience I have now and I had the people around me now, if I had done then, then it might have been different. I might have had a more of a balanced life, but what all I wanted to do was go in, and I was probably obsessed with just getting better. And I read everything I could. I watched as many videos as I could. You know, I went, I did everything I could to look at. You know, I looked at oils I could use myself. I looked at colours. That's why I got the black shirt. You know, I looked at what I could eat uh, uh, before the game. I found some stuff called Glycosport. Believe it or not, that they'd had good tests with in one of the Scandinavian countries. I think with, with dementia. So it used to buzz you, supposed to buzz your uh, concentration. So it used to take like tar, but I, I took that. And I, I tried to do as, as much as I could to make sure that I was better and the tiniest little bit would, would make me better. So I wasn't, I wasn't interested in massive gains because nobody makes massive gains. You make, you make slight ones. And my thing was to try and improve every season to be better than what I was the season before. Uh, and that, that was my drive, really, is to, is, to, is to be the best I possibly could. And then you, you'd look and say, oh, that was a great saviour, but I expected to make it. And then you say, oh, OK, I did this, I did that. Yeah, oh, great, but that's gone. Let's move on to the next thing. So probably, in a sense, not quite took it all in as I went away, as, as I went along, sorry. But now I've got time to look back and reflect and thinking, yeah, actually did OK. Maybe I should have had more. Of, maybe I should have been more interested in more other things. But in fact, there was, there was fuck all intro else to interest me. To be fair, <laughs> to be honest, I don't think you could have done much more than you did on the field. Would you say you were your biggest critic then? Uh, when, if you let in a goal, maybe you should have saved. Is that something you'd think about constantly, or would you be good at drawing a, a line in the sand and going, "We move on to the next game"? Well, if it, <clears throat> I got better as I got older, but when I first did it, I think. If I'd have seen someone in the road I didn't like, I would have run them over. Yeah. I was dead angry driving home. But but then I got to realise, well, 
you know, I'm angry because I'm angry at myself for doing something stupid. And then you get to a point where you go, well, actually, there's no, I can't change it. There's no point in beating myself up. Did I know why I did that mistake? Yes, I did. Okay, so I'll fix it next time. Yeah. And then if I made the same mistake again, I'd be, I'd be absolutely fuming. But I wouldn't make it more than twice. Ever. And if yeah. it was one, then I would hopefully I'd just sit down and work out why I'd done it and say, right, let's think about this, let's think about that. And then you work out a solution. And I, and I think it's the same as any mental health. You know, I was an experiment to try and get the best out of myself. And now if you take anxiety, depression, whatever you want to do, is that you try things and you should never stop trying things, I don't think, until you find the thing that works for you. Because yeah. with anxiety, it could, it could be music, it could be anything, it could be painting, whatever it is, then I don't think we should look at, you know what, whenever I read stuff about depression and anxiety, you know, there's only, oh, we can only do one or two things with you. But you can't, you can do hundreds of things. Let's just try them all. What's the worst can happen? Yeah. You've got anxiety, you've got anxiety. The anxiety will still be there if you go and do tap dancing. It'll still be there. But, you know, do you do you go, okay, I accept I've got it, so let's just move on and do my life anyway. So I, I think you just got to try everything. I think that's what I try to do in, in my, my career, really, is try anything that will give me an improvement. And if it didn't work, what's the worst can happen? Just, just go back to what I was doing before because I knew it worked. Or I knew, I knew what I was doing. And I think it's the same with mental health. The idea is you try... And move things forward and try and be positive all the time and that's what i'm saying if you've got somebody with a mindset who's behind you doing that as a psychologist or, or a clinician whatever you want to call it or just your mate then i think that's a better thing than somebody sitting in a room with you going yeah life shit in it because yeah. i think you need you know let's let's come on let's have, maybe look at it a different way and i did look at you know football's all about solving problems for me you know, you solve a problem, I'd stop them scoring, you know, how did he come through last time? Where's he going to cross the ball, you know, anticipating things. So, so for me, it's a problem that we need to try and solve. And sometimes the things have to be from outside the box. They can't always be in that little box of tricks that you've always used because nothing moves forward then. And I think, you know, on a podcast like this are different. You know, you can get people to talk about different things. So there's, there's things that they might hear on your podcast that they've never thought of. And that's where the beauty is. It's not, it's not, it's not sometimes the big things that make a difference. It's the, it's the little things. It may be just a little spark somewhere and, and that, that can cause a chain reaction where they get, they go, and they go out to you. I never thought of it like that. Let's, let's try that then. Okay. So I've got anxiety when I get up this morning. Okay. How long does it last? Well, okay. Well, I've look at that, you know, a panic attack. How long can a panic attack actually last for? <laughs> if you sit down and go, oh, I'm fed up with this. I'm keep getting this, keep getting that. You know, take a panic attack. A panic attack will last so long. So it, it, it most people will fight it because they don't want to. Once you say, oh, fuck it, let's, just, let's go through it because the adrenaline always lasts so long and then it'll just drain out. Like a petrol tank, it'll just drain out. So fuck it, let's just work Let's just work with it. Okay. Yeah. So what? So just accept it and then go, okay, I've got it. But I'm still going to shop. I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to try and do that. But if I've got it, I've got it. And then the more sometimes you accept that it's there and it's going to happen because you know you can't stop it, why would you want to fight it? Because at the end of the day, you know that tank's running. You know your tank's leaking all the time. It's leaking the stuff out. You're using your your fuel because eventually it will it will subside. 
and I think sometimes it's it's looking at it maybe visually where there's your there's your tank of adrenaline it's going to drip off so eventually that you know that you know two things one that's going to run out and two you're never going to die because you never have in the past and, and that to me is two big things you know so but it's just getting the, the rationale to sit down and and think about it and maybe just talk about it and go right okay panic attacks one thing okay anxiety okay well anxiety well we've got anxiety okay let's try and work through this then let's try and you know you can't get out of bed to get to the door okay let's just visualize you getting out of bed one day and just standing there then getting back in because nothing has to work instantaneously you know you, you've got it you, you've had it for a couple of years you know whatever then let's take it slowly and let's do it bit by bit but don't be disappointed don't yeah. up if you can't reach your targets because nobody always reaches their targets and failures it's never a failure because it's an attempt and I always work on the basis and I did in football every loss brings you closer to a win and so growing up we, we knew a lot about your career and obviously got friends family who, who adore Everton and adore yourself now you had some amazing years at Everton but sort of mid-90s there was a sort of a downward spiral in the team's performance and I think that actually led at one point in a death threat from a fan when you picked up four points from 12 games now I appreciate that's a very very small minority who were probably having a go at the time but could you talk us through that incident and what that was like um well I got a message to saying they're gonna uh, do stuff to my family and burn my house down with the family in it but you know I just... I took the letter to the chairman, Sir Philip Carter at the time, and I said, look, I've got this letter. He went, yeah, and? I was like, yeah, well, yeah fucking what do you mean, and? I said, they've my family. He went, well, you know. And I thought, I can't believe you're not fucking taking it seriously. So I thought, this is just fucking wrong. But at the end of the day, you know, when I look back on it, I'm thinking, well, maybe you dealt with more than me. But I would rather talk, spoke to somebody in the police and they said, yeah, but, you know, you just get fucking cranks if you write letters, blah, blah, blah. I'd never had it before. Um, and to be and fair, was he genuinely scared at the time, never? Well, I've never had one. <laughs> so, it, so uh, yeah. look, I, can, I, I think I can look after myself. I think I'm big enough to look after myself, but I don't, I, you know, I had a daughter and I had a wife and in my house and I didn't want that anything to do on and because we're away a lot you know things can happen can't they no definitely it's, it's a shocking thing to happen to anybody and for the the club to to have that stance I think is well I think in a, way, in a way it did help because I thought oh fuck it then if you're not taking it seriously and then I, I'm, I'm sure I made sure there was always somebody around her when I was away and I did you know I did. Luckily, we lived next door to the uh, chief constable of um, North Wales Police at the time, so that was a help. Um, not that he was any fucking use to be fair, but. <laughs> but and the thing is, you've obviously got a great relationship with Everton fans, um, and you still do to this day. Did you? You didn't see that as tarnishing any sort of period of time at the club or was it just this is one idiot who's probably got issues himself that's taken football too far well I think it, because of I think someone had to go at me when I went to get the ball and I went oh fuck off you wanker and I got I think I got on the paper and I think it grew from there 
So I don't know whether it was a serious threat, but I don't think it was a serious threat in the end. But it, but it was, you know, because they made me apologise in the paper and stuff, which, you know, I suppose I had to do, but I didn't really want to do because I thought, hang on a minute, this fella's calling me a fucking useless twat and all that. So why can't I tell him to fuck off? So I mean, because in any other walk of life, I'd be able to do it. But because <laughs> I, I wasn't allowed to do it, I think... Because that came out, and I think somebody else had obviously thought, oh, fucking man, we'll, we'll write this letter. I never thought it was anybody... I didn't think it was a fair reflection on any of the fans or anything like that. I just thought, I thought it was somebody who was just fucking gone over the edge, really, and that was it. But after a week or whatever, it was... I forgot all about it anyway. They weren't going to do anything. We put it it almost goes back to what we talked about before, about brands, the way you have to apologise for swearing at somebody who's, who's verbally assaulted you first. And then somebody sends you a death threat, and you're just got to, you've just been told to forget about it and put it in the bin. It's almost unbelievable that they take that human element away from footballers that you've got emotions too. Well, I, I think that's right, but but nobody wants them to have emotions, do they? Because you know, you have to be controlled. You you have to be controlled in in that controlled environment. But the thing that people got to realise is that football's a cross section of lads. Well, you've seen it in the women's game now as well because. There's bits of shit creeping into that, isn't there? They get a bit of abuse. So it's cross section of lads. You know, when you go anywhere, they're not all going to be nice people. They're not all going to be idiots. But they reflect what the population is. Some will be incredibly clever. Some will be thick. Some, some, you know, at this moment in time, you guarantee there's, there's gay footballers, but they can't come out because of the, the way things are. You you look at just cross section of society. There's got to be whatever there is in society that isn't within that uh, industry. So I, I don't think it's. I think it's just one of the things where I wouldn't dream of when the fella comes to fit a fucking tire on my car or do some to say fucking hell, mate. You're doing a shit job here. You fucking wank, won't you? Fuck off. <laughs> yeah, it's put, true. Put, yeah. Put that fucking washing machine in properly, you useless twat. I can't believe you've done that. I'm paying you this much money and you're fucking rubbish. You you wouldn't get that. But, you know, you've also got to remember that the working class gamers, they worked the bollocks off whenever they worked all week. They come to the match and it was a release for them. If you if you take 22 people as well, uh, there's, there's more than 22 now, but you take each side and the referees lot, you could argue, is it better to have 40,000 people going away well, some of them will go happy and some of them won't, but the majority, for them to let their shit out on top of the people that, you know, are, are, are providing the entertainment or non-entertainment as it goes, than rather have the, the 40 or 50 be well protected. You need to have an, you know, a sort of balance in both, but at the same time, you know, there's, there's got to be release for people as well, and maybe... May Without that release, there'd be other trouble somewhere else. Yeah, maybe maybe you're right. Yeah, they get it out of the football and it stops them doing something worse elsewhere. And I, th I think it's obviously important to say as well that there's some of people's happiest moments at football games as well. And I don't want us to just focus on the negative well, and we, we just share that. How many kids were born after the FA Cup finals and European Cup finals and Cup Winners Cup finals? How many kids were born after that and the titles? Yeah. So you know there's a real good side of it. And I do think all I'm saying, I think, is is there's got to be a line somewhere. And at the moment, 
the lines are blurred and the lines are blurred because the lines are blurred in society you know you've got probably Boris Johnson again I can go back to Boris Johnson and Trump who who are not setting good role models you know if Boris if Boris Johnson was a kid in my school and he and he, he spoke the way he speaks we'd have to exclude him yeah and because we can't have people lying and homophobic and racist and sexist. We can't we can't have that in school. But it seems to be acceptable at the higher levels because there's been a drive to get Europe done. And then he's getting Europe done is he's pushing the us and the, uh, the us and them situation all the way through the country. And, and it's been wrong and you've got three other people probably doing the same thing. And, and I think that's that's creeped that creep crept into football, sorry, and I think it, it has been really, really difficult. And I think at the moment, football's got to stamp its authority back. And, and so so society, really. And we, we can't do it at the moment because the people in power are just hopeless. Just to um, sort of touch on then, back onto your career, Nev. In, in 1996, you were awarded an MBE. Um, what was that like? Um, so it was okay, to be fair. I felt a bit of a fraud, really. Because when I walked in, there's all sorts of people in uniform. Um, because you go, I think there's there's four rooms they have, so you have OBEs, MBEs, some else, and some else. So they all fed into one bit from four corners, and you just have to see, you know, you got to you just got to nod and, and dip your head and be nice. The funny thing was, in the letter though, they offered me the video of the thing for ninety nine quid, which I thought was funny. <laughs> I just thought, yeah, okay, we want, yeah, because no one else can film it, can they? So they've got that. Um, so I thought that was quite funny. Um, but yeah, because you see, you know, there's people in uniforms and all, and you're thinking, well, I wonder what he's done, and he, you know, the Gurkhas there and stuff like that. They've always been through horrendous things, and I've got an MBE for kicking the ball around. I, I, the work you're doing on Twitter is is really something that stood out to us, and one of the reasons we, we wanted you on the show because. We're trying to give people a platform, and what we love about what you've done is the platform you're giving people as well. Uh, and I think it's very admirable what you've been doing. And I know you don't come across as somebody who does it because they wanted to be praised for it. A lot of people tend to do these things because they want to be seen to doing them. I think you've actually got to genuinely care, and it comes across that you do. Well, I look at it two ways, really. It gets me off Twitter because I'd be on it all fucking day otherwise. <laughs> two, when I sat down, I basically don't know fuck all. So it's it's a good way of learning. And you know, like I say, there's the things that you can learn about that I never thought, and I never had the opportunity to do before. And, and I've always liked people who who've got fight in them. You know, the sex workers. Even now, not one of the parties has mentioned the sex workers, but they're living round your houses. Yeah, the fucking mothers, the daughters, the sons, the brothers, the cousins, the aunties, the uncles, but. They, what's going to happen to them? You know, so there's a whole point of society which is, gets on my tits, to be fair, that why, why can't we look after all of society? And that's why I think it's... It bugs me an awful lot that I can't get anybody to listen. You know, to... What's going to happen to them? You know, and if you're talking about spreading diseases, you know, this, this way, and then they've got... You're forcing them out to work. You're forcing them to do stuff to go out and find people to, to be with. And and what I did realise is that they do a brilliant job on most of them. Because yeah. you know, I always think that as a sex worker that's handing on the street corner. Mm -hmm. no, I'm 
that angie on the street corner but in all fairness there's, there's different types you know there's people who give disabled people the love and attention that they need that they never get anywhere else there's people who go off around the world and cost a fortune for everybody and there's people who want to do it because they want to send their kids to college they want to do all sorts of different things so there's there's a million different reasons why they do it but people lump sex trafficking and human trafficking in, in with sex work and it's it's not all the time and if, if the police decriminalized sex workers then they would have more chance to get all of the traffickers and and really concentrate their efforts where they should be concentrated and i think that's i don't like people who, who just get brushed aside or, or i don't i never have done and that's one of the reasons why they do it too i think what do i do i don't do fuck all i just say oh, yeah, i use this it's fuck all is it Really, doesn't doesn't put me out, doesn't do anything, but it keeps me off. So for me, it's it's a good way of giving somebody else, what is it now, one hundred sixty thousand people, to say, look, hang on a minute, what about this? What about that? And, and most of the time, people receive really, really well. Okay, we've had a few instances of people going too far, but you know, I'm quite aware that not everything's going to go smoothly. But what do I do? Do I stop it and go on? Well, I can't do that anymore because. You know, somebody's messed up, or they might say, "Well, fuck it, let's just keep going." And whatever it is, it is. But the reason I'm talking to you is because of that. And yeah. So it's got no, me. To, yeah. Got me into places, got me to talk to people I'd never speak to, and and that to me is a, is another good reason. I can speak to people around the world. There's people I speak to now, who in a billion billion years I've never speak, I'd never spoke to before. So it's up my horizons up, and it's. If I want to know someone, I'll just put it on Twitter and within five minutes I know the answer. I think um it's it's very good what you're doing, Nev. And well, one I'm, question I want sorry, go on. The only thing I would say is that you can't work in isolation. And we we've got to somehow get through to charities. Is that together? You've got to be together and they've got to get together with the NHS and they've got to work together because like I said to you at the moment there is no there is no cohesion now with the nhs being what it is we need the charities to pick up some of the slack we need the charities i've always need to pick up you know if i if i'm sat in a and e and i'm having really dark thoughts about suicide i don't want to wait three hours and i want someone in the hospital to go actually look you're going to be three hours here but here's a charity bring them now they'll be down in 10 minutes Look, I'm not an expert in mental health. So I would never, ever start a charity up tomorrow. Because I don't know enough. I'd be dangerous. Now, how many charities out there, you know, are, are regulated in terms of their knowledge? I don't, I, don't, I don't mean that, you know, that you want you, everybody wants to make a difference at a charity. Everybody does. But how do we, how do we make sure that they're giving the right information out? And I think that's where the NHS must come in. And the NHS must say, well, actually, yes, come through the training with the NHS and, and we know that you're giving the right kind of care. But 99.9 have probably got it. But there'll always be one or two who, who, who could do better. I'm saying if we can get some sort of regulatory thing where it's about the, the quality that they give out, not just because they've got a big heart, and I think, yeah, you do need a big R, but you need the knowledge because 
there's been times when I've had to tweet somebody in the middle of the conversation going, I can't deal with this. Can you help me out? And it's happened two or three times. And there's things that I've learned on here that you must protect yourself. And sometimes that I run into a brick wall and I can't physically or, 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 or do anything to help anymore. And I don't understand where I need to go next. So I've got a little group of people who I can just tweet and hopefully they'll come back and say, well, I'll just tell them, pass them on to me. And that's been good, but it's also shown that I have a lack of knowledge and I can take it so far. You know, and I, I do try and make sure that I, I do courses. I mean, I've done probably 10 on mental health since I've been off work. I've done my suicide stuff. You know, I've done lots of mental health ones through Unison, but you need something else around you as well when you haven't got the answer and that's why i think we need to make sure that the information that's given out is, is the right information you, you mentioned um earlier about the being gay footballers out there and and not coming forward i know it's a difficult question but what why do you think that is and and will that change it's going to change you know it's going to change because there's scum papers about so yeah. you have a choice in this life is that you either you either going to come out in the, in the right way, or someone's going to out you? What do you think, as a former footballer? I know when you when you were playing the game, the dressing room was probably completely different to what it is now. But if one of your teammates came out, what do you think the reaction would have been? We'd have all took the piss out of them and slaughtered them, and then we just took up from. Yeah, so that's it. You when you're in the dressing room. It's like very much you doing your show now. You can take the piss out of each other. But when someone takes the piss out of the show, you all band together and stick up for each other. Yeah, it's very true. That's almost like no one takes the piss out of him but us. Yeah. That sort of attitude. And that, that's exactly what you get in there. And it doesn't matter what you are. Nobody get, no nobody would give a shit. Right? I did a thing with, you know, when I was on Twitter once saying, well, you know, would you mind if... Having a, had a gay footballer, uh, you know, a gay player, and he said, Well, as long as you can score 30 goals a season, who gives a fuck? You just want to be yeah. first. So I, I think, you know, it will come a point, but I, I do think the FA and people are, are, are very slow and very ponderous towards it. And it's going to happen. And when it happens, everything will be a reaction, not a planned action. And I think that's, that's the problem for me is that. I would like to see something done now. Um, but for me, like you, you see people who will just look the other way and you see people like yourself who will give your platform and give your voice and champion other humans that you've probably never met or probably will never meet. But I just really want to try and understand, is that always from someone who's been through situations with their mental health where they've struggled and they've gone to hell and back or is it just through further education like what you've done yourself which has given you that attitude of actually caring um i, I just think yeah you either do or you don't i think it's very simple isn't it uh, or or you go to an experience that makes you care yeah you know, i think everybody deep down is but this, this, you know, this. I still get days when, you know, we had a we had a temporary teacher or fella come in not so long back to school, and I went, oh, I might, he went, not really, and I went, oh, okay, see you later, and I thought afterwards, thought, oh fuck, 
I yeah. really just stopped and talked to him. But we were on our way out to pick the kids up. I've never seen him the rest of the day, and I thought, oh, shit. And I think sometimes it's that. Is is that when people say no, everyone goes, oh fuck, right? What do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it it is hard at times, you know. To, to, it's hard at times to keep your positivity. And I don't know what it's like you, but sometimes you know when you speak about it all day, and it is quite draining. Now I see what I normally do if someone comes on to me and says, right, this, and I don't know who they are, I go on their thing. On their um, Twitter, and I look at all the uh, all the things, and I look at do everything. Yeah, I, I look at the one thing that I can connect with, or something to talk about apart from what they're talking about. Uh, do you do you get a lot of people who like come to you personally for advice? Uh, maybe not advice as such, but they tell me that they they've had enough. Yeah, uh, that is quite heavy, then, isn't it, to deal with? Yeah, and sometimes I can I can do it all, and sometimes I don't. Um, all I try and do is, is is do what I always do is distract. Yeah. <laughs> so I look at all of the, all the all the stuff on Twitter and go right, okay. Or you you do sports, so let's talk about this. And for me, it's about just disengaging their brain on on one path and putting it on another. Yeah, but and I know, think I, I think sorry, go on. Well, I just say sometimes in you know it's, if I get up. Sort of, I don't know, say you get up at 10 o'clock in the morning and I put my Twitter on, and it's like, you know, I'm here, I want to do this. Shit, I've got a cup of tea yet. Yeah. Got this. Or someone will say, well, you need to speak to so and so because they, they've had enough. You know, right, okay. So I need to speak to them. And how would you refuse that? No, that's it, isn't it? You feel, I, th- I feel like, um, like we're quite similar in a lot of ways because I feel like I was brought up to believe that you're socially responsible for, you know, people in a, in a capacity of if they reach out, then it's your responsibility I to help. I think you are, but I also think you've got a, a duty to yourself to keep yourself safe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people, that's one of the things I have learned is that if I don't think it's going to go well for me or... You know, or I'm not making more headway that I should be making, then I do tweet other people and say, "Look, can you have a look at this?" Blah blah, whatever. Yeah. So use other people, so I'm I'm lucky that way. But I also realise there's this people who come on all the time, and I learned quickly that sometimes it's not all about the end product with them. It's about just having someone regular to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of lonely people out there, especially on social media. Yeah, there is. But again, you have to set yourself targets and time because, you know, I had one fella from Canada who, who came on a lot and was on for an hour. Now, I'm getting up at five o'clock to go to work in the morning and I, you know, if I'm there past midnight, I'm, yeah. you, you're, yes, it's great that I'm here for you, but at the end of the day, I have to have my own life as well. So, like I say, sometimes I can pass them on to other people who've been with the Samaritans and who are good people who can, who can pick up where I leave off. Welcome back. I'm still with Ryan, Katie and Ant. One thing that, that Neville touched on when he was he was speaking to you at the end, Katie, of that interview was about how do you draw the line between helping others but also looking after yourself? 
Do you know what? It's a really good question and I wish I had a straightforward answer, but I don't really. And it's something that in the line of work that I do, you have to be really conscious because you can lose awareness when you're getting overwhelmed, you know, because you've been transferred on by other people. You can you can lose awareness that that is having an implication on your own mental health. Um, so I just think if you were to be any human in any any phase of life, regardless of what the job is, if they can try and keep some level of awareness and autonomy about this is the kind of things I need to put in place every day because it's really important that I maintain mental resilience and strong men mental health, as you would think of, you know, particularly with physical health. You know, you, you're limited with your ability if you don't encourage the best type of health within you as a human. So for me, the practices that I put in because of the work I do, um, I've recently just started adopting mindfulness in the morning and evenings, which is just about being still and, and just breathing, really, because we're a generation where we're not still and, you know, we're rushing around everywhere. So just by breathing properly is, is a really massively profound thing that you can do to just get your head space. Um, eating well, exercising if and when you can. But also you've got to realise that you can't help every single person. And I, 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 I disagree with that to some extent because I'm very naive and will always try. And the volume of people that I get through, I'm able to help. But you cannot help the world. And if you aren't at your best self and you're not healthy and you're not happy, you know, you're going to give the wrong advice or you're not going to be able to give the advice. If you go down, you can't help anyone. And for people who like to help people, um, you need to keep yourself strong and you need to be mindful that there are going to be times when people will reach out and the best you can do is to signpost because you're not able to, to be with them or be next to them or give them all of the answers that they're looking for. But then in the same breath, what I've noticed is people just want interaction with other people and we need that. But we do have to be very mindful of what's being transferred onto us. And then can we then transfer that off in a way of protecting ourselves and, you know, just taking time out and recognising our limitations? Because we, we are limited as, as humans, you know, we haven't got endless amounts of, of strategies and energy and stuff so yeah uh i know i noticed one of you has put your mic on there i don't know ant or ryan have you got anything specific else you want to you want to you want to add into that um just when you're talking about about um being able to help others i think you're completely right you can only help when you you good yourself you know, you can only you can only do it if you're not in a good place. The ripple effect doesn't work as well. So when you're trying to be mindful, you try and work out who you're doing it for. Um, you're doing it for yourself. That's fine. You're doing it to, for yourself and to help others. What effect is this mindfulness going to have? Um, you know, 10 minutes a day might make a massive difference in, in terms of your home life, your social life, how you interact with others might not get as as emotionally charged over over some things which is a difficult thing to 
to pick back up, you know, particularly when you go into sporting environments and um, issues that are really, really big, you know. Um, I take it for a, a, an example in the lead up to the elections in December. It was quite hard for me to to be too emotionally involved. It was it was really draining, and at the end of the day, it was you know it's a really important topic, and it was quite difficult to to even think of. Um, but you know, I don't need to necessarily. I can just control what I can control. So I can just control my beliefs and and hope that hope that it goes the way you want. Um, and then. Yeah, I think if you spin too many plates, some of them are going to fall, aren't they? Um, which I think is a is a is a saying that only really you can use when you look back in hindsight um, on on times in your life. Why were you so stressed? Why were you off work? Well, I was trying to trying to spin about ten different plates, and half of those plates are really really stressful. So um, <laughs> I think you, you've got to. Mindfulness is a, is, a, is a great tool. It really is. There's various different ways of, of getting that mindfulness. It could be a walk. Um, it could be looking up for once, but leaving your phone at home, um, trying to notice something new. I think I went on a walk uh, last year. <laughs> I'd lived at where I was living for about three years. And um, I walked past an allotment that I'd never, ever seen before in my life. I went home to my girlfriend and she went, it's been there like forever. How have you not seen that? It's like, I've never looked up. I've never bothered. Just never took it in. Um, so it's funny how that how, how it works and, and what it gives you. And and when it when it works well, the ripple effect is is really, really um powerful. You know, it has an effect on on um your girlfriend, your family, and in turn they get a they get a, the best version of you. And I think that's what we're trying to search for is is the most comfortable version of you as well. Yeah, I think it's really important as well to try and make sure you get rest. Rest is so important, don't you find? Like for just recharging your batteries and, and waking up and just having like full energy. Yeah, absolutely. And like 10 minutes a day is, is, is kind of what they say. And it's nothing that. And the effect is is massive. Um, it just gives you, gives you a lot of... Um, just just helps just helps massively you know do, do you know what i found with the mindfulness as well that i feel like if you're in a helping capacity or even if you're not and you've just got a busy life like we all have if you take that 10 minutes out it's like you're communicating to yourself as well that i'm worth this time i'm valuable i'm important you know i'm i value myself so i think it can because we don't really do that we're not very kind to ourselves in the we sit kind of see like kindness as going down the pub on a Friday and having a few beers or having a bottle of wine and watching a movie, you know, but we're sat on the couch and we're exhausted doing those things. So to do something different where A, it doesn't cost you any money, B, it doesn't have an implication on your health, you know, other than a positive one. I think it just communicates so many different things to you as a person and how important you are in, in the world that you're in. Yeah, and when you talk about kindness as well, it's it's often the language. I think Danny's mentioned this before. The language we use to describe ourselves often because we're in this this kind of jokey banterish uh, environment that particularly in, in terms of lads, 
Um, you know, you try and get the, the joke in in first before anyone else does, and then it becomes part of your part of your everyday life where you just make that joke constantly and constantly, and you you know you don't need to. You you need to go. Well, do you know what? I, I'm at here a, a good version. You know, I don't need to put myself down and in times where I'm trying to talk myself up as well. At the same time, it, it you know if we speak in a kind of way to ourselves, it'll have a better effect. Yeah, definitely. And I think you're right as well. Like what you say about it has an implication on your, your social relationships as well, because if you don't take that time off for yourself, then you're just there for everybody else. And that that's just not a great feeling to have, you know. Southall touched on that aunt as well, didn't he? He said that when we asked him about um, what would his reaction be to a gay footballer coming out during his era, and he said we all would have took the piss out of him. And then we all would have protected him. And it's funny how that, that happens in male social circles, it, that element of we can take the piss out of you, but no one else can. And I don't know how healthy that is for them to even take the, the piss out of their own mate. But I do think um, what that shows you is the attitude towards it is if they actually feel threatened by somebody else. So like somebody from outside their circle taking the neck, um, they would take it seriously and they'd, they'd, they'd jump up to protect uh, the friend, but in the first instance, as you say, it becomes part of your, the the daily fabric to to um, call you by your nickname or point something out that you do all the time. Well, I just I don't know if it's like a nervous reaction to things. I don't know if it's just like the easy go to conversation because we're not great at talking. It's almost just easier to take the piss. It's like our, our language of saying hello, where women will sit down and go, how are you today? How have you been? Or oh, what, what's your day like? They'll, they'll talk about everything. Where lads just go, all right, no bed. It's like a weird reaction <laughs> that, that we like have, that, isn't it? It's like banter, isn't it? But girls will have banter. But I, with my female friends, we don't really have banter the same way that you do with your male friends. It's very different and... I totally get what you're saying, though. Like, girls will sit down and have a deep and meaningful, like, I don't know, five times a day. And with male friends, like, I've noticed as well, um, men are a bit more... Like, I was talking to somebody the other day about responsiveness from female friends. Girls will respond instantly. Males will just be a little bit more laid back. And the whole conversation is just very, very different. We're such very different social animals. And... It would be really interesting to see, actually, if what everyone thinks is that women have evolved to feel able to speak and men haven't felt as able yet, with a view to potentially that might evolve and they might, you know, be more comfortable speaking. I do wonder how long that will take and if that is actually going to be the case, you know, because men may not evolve to feel comfortable talking, but they may evolve in other ways where they put in other practices to tackle how they're feeling and how they're thinking it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to end up like women you know chatting on the phone constantly and texting and you know really communicating very well it's an interesting landscape to watch it is it's funny isn't it because uh you mentioned the phone bit there i think the phone was only ever used by my mum my dad never answered it yeah. <laughs> it was never for him it's always for me mum so yeah. yeah it's funny though because I was listening to um, a psychiatrist on um, YouTube um, fellow called Dr Jordan Peterson me and Dan 
both listen to quite a lot. And he talks about how men are programmed to like things and how they work. And women are interested in people and how they think. Like it's like a biological sort of difference in men and women. So I think one thing we have to try and do is not try and make women like men or men like women, but find a sort of niche that is comfortable for both. So yeah, women yeah. are very good at talking. So that's not really what you need to, to focus on. You maybe need to focus on other social aspects and we won't get into that now. But with men, we're not good at talking, but it doesn't mean we need to make them talk how women talk. Do it just what? means we need to create an environment that is comfortable for them to talk. Um, like Andy's man club, who we had on. That's such an important point, that, because you know what I've noticed as well is a lot of marketing out there from reach out, speak, speak out, you know, you've got to talk, you've got to open up, you've got to... That's another massive amount of expectancies to put on a population who don't feel comfortable speaking. You know, to say to somebody, this is what you have to do. You know, I have a lot of um, people come through on the Mento and I was talking to somebody the other day and we were in agreement that talking wasn't something he was comfortable with doing. But knowing there was somewhere to talk if he needed it was great so we explored different avenues you know things like walking things like painting other creative outlets that didn't include having to sit and talk when you just you don't want to and you don't want to be pushed into doing something you're not comfortable with absolutely yeah, i think it's, it's it's important to, to to say that this is going to take time as well isn't it you know it, i think men have have always talked but talked in a way that takes ages to get to the point um, <laughs> and and in, in a way that we just you know you're in the pub and you're there for like six hours and by the time you get to the point you want to make you, you can't really you can't really make make the point it, it, it's going to take time and, and i think what will be a good thing is if men shorten that time from when uh when to actually get into the point and saying look I, i've got an issue can you help me out and and, and go from there it should be shorten that that would be That'd be amazing. I think the effect and 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 the, that would have on on men in in general would be un, unbelievable. But it's going to take time, but I think I think what we're doing and 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 the, what the country is trying to do uh, should we, should get us there. Yeah, if that's I think, it, yeah. if we're collective and we work together, then we're all creating the same volume, aren't we? And hopefully, we'll all be heard together because we'll be louder something i thought he did really well not just throughout describing his career but also after it is he just tried to simplify things even when he was playing he talked about he didn't really like overcoaching and too much stats and outside of that um when we were asking him about like sort of what help he does he just basically said i know fuck all so i'll just hand you over to somebody who does which i think is quite like a, a nice healthy approach to the way he, he treats life whereby a lot of people get down or anxious because there's so much chaos going around them. And I think if you can remove that chaos, things become a little bit simpler. They might not become perfect, but I, I often get it in work because I'm in a sales role where like, you might have a few different things going on, plus the things going on with your social life. And it's easy to get, like, instead of doing them in an orderly um, sort of balance, you just end up doing none of them well. And I think sometimes if you can just prioritise things and get rid of the things you don't really need to get uh, to do, and just get your sort of ducks in a row. Um, it, it makes life so much easier. And I think that was something Southall did really, really well. Didn't overcomplicate things. So thanks once again for joining us. As I mentioned at the start, this is the last episode of Series 2. 
Series 3 will be with you in two weeks' time, Monday the 15th of June. And we'll be starting with Dave Bolton. And I'm not even going to try and describe his background. You just need to listen to the episode because it's frankly ridiculous. Yeah, I'd also like to mention the opening question. Neither Ryan nor Ant mentioned the David Ball chip for Fleetwoods against Preston, which was nominated for the Buscast Award. So shame on the both of you for that. We're now going to leave you with Neville Southall's quickfire questions. So once again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks for Series 3. Who had the best touch? You, Bruce Grabbelart, or Dick Strawbridge? Oh, Dick, Dick Strawbridge. <laughs> I don't even know who he is. What about um, between you and, and Grabbelart now? Oh, I don't really know. To be fair, but I don't dwell on Bruce's face that much, to be fair. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> right, next question, Nev. Um, if you could pick any two centre halves from your time at Everton to play behind, who would they be? Oh, Rats and Dave Watson, probably. Well, I've got speed and speed and aggression. Both nasty little bastards as well. <laughs> <laughs> Nev, what's your, your favourite biscuit with a cup of tea? Oh, good question. Fig roll. Fig roll. <laughs> Strong choice. In 1992, when the, the back pass rule came in, what was that like? It was all right, to be fair. Um, I think I think we, pre-season, we played at Bristol City away, I think. And Matt Jackson had been away, and then only come back. So he, he fucking gave me, a th- he gave me the throw in, and I had to fucking head it out, and he didn't realise it was a back pass rule. So, yeah, no, it didn't bother me, to be fair. I always played out in five sides and stuff like that, so... And you got to remember that I, I also, when I was younger, I played in golf my county one year and out the next. After all the success Everton had in the mid to late 80s, Nev, it seemed to decline quite quickly um, in the early 90s. Why do you think that was? Well, because I would left. And, and obviously when I would left, I think Colin wanted his own team and, and, and changed a few bodies and Sometimes it works, sometimes it don't. Well, I think you've seen um, on all the seasons we've signed more than two players pre-season. It hasn't quite worked out. So I think I felt sorry for Colin, to be fair. But I think the main reason that Howard went, um, and it was a bit disjointed after that. And once you bring new people in to address them who are obviously going to be first choice and you've got people who've been there and won it, in the dressing room, it does become a bit fractious at times. If you were elected to Ten Downing Street, what would be your first act as Prime Minister? My first act? Yes. Ooh. I would put the NHS back to where it was. That would be That's my first one. But I'd put all the emergency services back to where they were. So that means we'd have more police, more, more firemen, more ambulance drivers and more NHS staff. And with that, I would allow anybody in the world to work for the NHS as long as they were good enough. I think the one main thing I would change on the NHS is, is to give the the cleaners as much respect as the doctors. Yeah. The doctors, I've looked at it and looked at it, and everybody's getting credit, but if that hospital's not clean, nothing goes on. No. I know, so, but we, we, we don't put any sort of massive recruiting into, into hospital cleaners as far as I can see. And there's a stigma around cleaning as it is. Yeah. Change that. 
Nev, when you played with the uh, with Vinnie Jones, mm-hmm. did you ever think he'd turn into a movie star? So, I'm not sure, really. I, I never thought about being an actor, in all fairness. But you could see he was he, he was larger than life, so even ideal to be an actor. Wouldn't he? I, mean, I think he, I think he's done fantastic for what you know. He's 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 a person that I like because he's maximised what he's always had. Do you know what I mean? He's he's not been. You couldn't say he was a Pele of Wimbledon, could you? Yeah. He's maximised everything he's possibly had. And he's done the same in Hollywood. He's got out there and he's made his mark. So, fair play to him. There's been a, a bit of talk in recent months prior to the football stopping uh, that Guardiola was going to ask Edison, as goalkeeper, to take the penalties. If you'd been asked to take penalties in your career, what would your approach have been? Would you have been a, um, a bit more cultured or smash it through the laces? I think penalties just depend on how well you're feeling and how the game's going and what, what moment it is. If you're in the last minute and you're nil-nil, fuck placing it, smash it. <laughs> Both for power. Because I work, yeah. if I can hit the ball at 90 mile an hour, it's going to be hard to stop on it. Well, yeah, you either miss or you score. If you score, everybody loves you. If you miss, you're the twat. Well, most of the time, you're <laughs> anyway, so who cares? <laughs> yeah, during your um, during your career, what was your what was your favourite moment? Like, if you had to pick one moment as your uh, highlight, Bayern Munich Cup Winners Cup semi final at Goodison. Yeah, don't think you can get a better atmosphere than that ever. Yeah, I thought it might be that. Yeah, that's yeah. um, it was before my time, but that's one of those um, that's one of those evenings you talk to any Everton fans if you were alive at that time. That's the one thing that they always go to. Yeah, and they've always been. So we had a crowd of four hundred thousand. <laughs> I've never met anybody who wasn't there. <laughs> Come to think about it, I think I was there. <laughs> yeah, you were sat next to me. <laughs> a splendid goalless draw was etched out in the Olympic Stadium in Munich to set up a winner takes all second leg a fortnight later. It was arguably Goodison Park's greatest ever night. Turgle is onside and clean in at Neville Southall. And Hernes off the goalkeeper. There are two on the line for Everton. But Hernes finds a way past them. Gray goes in. Sharp! Trevor Stephen. 
Everton simply came out for the second half, rolled up their sleeves and refused to be beaten. They're through to their first European final. Andy Gray's crucial goal, the second of Everton's three. And the unique treble is very much on at the expense of the similar ambitions of Bayern Munich. So how will Jamie fare against some long-range efforts? Get in there! Well done, he's 13. Game, set and match, Owen.